Welcome to the Sword and Trial podcast. Sword and Trial is a podcast of Founders Ministries, and Founders exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. I'm Tom Askell. And I'm Graham Gundon. And we are on the cusp of, or actually just past the cusp of our 40th anniversary mm-hmm. at Founders. It was November 13th, to, or 1982, that seven men met in a hotel room in Euless, Texas, right outside of Dallas. Spent the day in prayer and planning, and the result was the first Founders Conference. And from that conference that took place in the summer of 1983, uh, Founders Ministries sprang. So we're praising God for His goodness and grace to us. We'll talk more about that at the upcoming conference in January. So we hope that you will attend that conference and we're close to selling yeah, out. Yeah, we right? got right? we got less than 200 seats available. So if you want to come to the conference in January, make sure you get online and register for for it. Now, it is going to be our 40th anniversary yeah. conference and so we're going to be celebrating the 40th anniversary. You and several of the original board members of Founders will be there yeah. discussing that um you can sign up for the ministry update dinner as well. We'll be celebrating the 40th anniversary at that. Um, but before the conference, we're having a pre-conference right. with Dr. Vody Bauckham. And, you know, we don't we don't usually talk <laughs> about controversial things here at Founders, um, but, but this one's going to be a little different. We're going to be talking about Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. <laughs> That's the, right. At you know. the pre-conference with you and with uh, Vody Bauckham. It's funny, too, to watch the people respond to that. I can't believe these guys are pushing Christian na- Well, we hadn't said a word about it yet. Good, bad, <laughs> indifferent. Well, I'm, you know, I'm still trying to figure out exactly... Uh, one thing I've, I've come to see in my studies so far is that Christian nationalism defined is different from how Christian nationalism is used. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so if, you, mm-hmm. uh, if you're playing in either one of those fields, you're going to see things a little differently. Yeah. Yeah. So we hope that you'll sign up uh, for that. We're, we're delighted today to have with us Dr. Jim Renahan, who is the president of IRBS, the International Reformed Baptist Seminary that is based now in Texas. Uh, Jim began this ministry out in Westminster, uh, attached to Westminster Seminary in Escondido, California. In the last few years, they have detached and become a standing alone seminary in Texas. And it's just been exciting to see the good things that are happening through Mm -hmm. that ministry and Jim's leadership of that ministry. And one of the things that uh, we're delighted that Dr. Renahan has done is to take the gifts and the study that he's done over decades and write on the First Baptist Confession of Faith, First London Baptist Confession of Faith, which founders published a couple of years ago called Vindication of the Truth, For the Vindication of the Truth, and the second one, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is far better known and more widely used among Baptists, that uh, that commentary is coming out, God willing, in February. It's supposed to have been out uh, earlier, but the hurricane disrupted things, and so uh, we've gotten out of line with our printer and having to get back in line, and uh, God willing, we will have that in hand and in the mail in February. But you can order it right now mm-hmm. as a uh, pre-sale discounted price, and you get a free you get a free ebook, ebook. with it. So the, you you can order the hard copy, uh, but you get the ebook along with it. That's uh, right. Which is if you read ebooks, which I do. Yeah, uh, it's very good. And you get that immediately. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so get online. You can look and, and find that book in our store and order it. Well, uh, Dr. Renahan, thank you so much for joining us today. We're delighted to have you on the Sword and the Trial. My pleasure. Thank you very much. We're interested in letting folks know a little bit about your own background and, and how you got interested in symbolics and particularly in the um, 1689 confession, which has been your love and you've taught 
from for many, many years. So uh, tell us a little bit about your early experience, how you, you came to Christ, your background there, and then what led you in the educational track that you followed? Yeah, I was a teenager, about 15 years old, when I came to faith in Christ through a Baptist church in my hometown. Uh, was baptized uh, the same night that my then, not even girlfriend, but soon to be my wife, uh, was baptized. We were baptized together. Mm. Uh, went off to Christian college, then went to seminary. Uh, had some um, professors who urged me to keep going. And so I wanted to go study with Dr. Nettles at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and was accepted into their PhD program. But I wanted to do something that I thought would help churches very much. And one of the things I had realized over the years is that uh, we had a confession of faith, uh, what is popularly known as the 1689 Confession, but we didn't know much about its background. We didn't know much about the churches and the men who subscribed to it and what their views really were. So I decided that when I did my PhD work, I would focus my attention on the confession of faith. And Dr. Nettles was a great help, really loved studying with him. Um, I focused back then on ecclesiology because that was one of the emphases in the, the TED's PhD program. But then that led me when I began to teach out in California to I, one of the classes I had to teach was called Baptist Symbolics, which is a study of Baptist confessions. And I had to focus on uh, the 1689 confession, especially, which led me to begin to uh, probe into more than just the, the doctrine of the church found in the confession of faith. And so that was almost 25 years ago. Um, when I w went to TED's, it's almost 30 years ago. So I've been working on this material in some ways for three decades. Um, as I've lectured over the years and grown in my understanding, um, some men have urged me to take my, my lecture notes and put them into print. And so uh, I, I went through the process of what I call prosifying uh, by taking outlines and putting some uh, uh, flesh onto the skeletons. And the result is uh, these books that, uh, that we're publishing now. Well, it's been a great service to the church. Uh, the, the first volume that came out has been wonderful, primarily for, for me, at least, for just historical background and understanding of uh, what was going on in that era. The Presbyterians were publishing the Westminster Confession, and Baptists were not without their own earlier mm -hmm. confession right. on that. And so uh, you've shed a lot of light on that. And this, this next volume, as I've read it in the uh, proof stages, uh, I think it's a classic already. Yeah. I, I think it'll be an instant classic. There's mm -hmm. not anything like it. I mean, we got Sam Waldron's commentary, which is very good. I'm grateful mm -hmm. for that. Very helpful. Yeah, uh, but but you have demonstrated connections from chapter to chapter in the 1689 that I have not thought about prior to hearing you teach on it and now reading that. Tell us a little bit about how, how you came to and, and how you recommend people read the 1689 Confession? Well, that, that's an interesting question. You know, the, the temptation that we have with many, many books is to read them vertically. 32 chapters in the Confession of Faith. We read each one. We treat them as if they are uh, focusing on discrete subjects. But one of the things that I learned early on is that there are many threads that are woven throughout the Confession. So I, I like to call it reading it sideways. Maybe a better term is horizontally as opposed to vertically. And to recognize that 
there's a great deal um, of doctrinal material that is present if you flow from chapter to chapter to chapter. Early in the confession, it's laying down foundational principles. Later in the confession, it's picking up some of the threads that are laid down by those foundational principles. So when you read in, in the first, oh, let's say, six or seven chapters, you're asking the question, what does this anticipate that comes later on? And when you're reading in the latter chapters, you're asking the question, what does this fulfill? What was laid down before? How do they work together? For example, uh, there is no chapter on the Holy Spirit in the Confession of Faith, but the Holy Spirit appears more than 50 times. And so it would be relatively easy to work your way through the Confession of Faith, noting how the Holy Spirit is designated from the very first chapter where he's the one who inspires the scriptures mm -hmm. all the way to the end. Uh, and and create, uh, or not not create, but recognize the presence of a doctrine of the Holy Spirit that's really profound woven throughout the confession of faith. So that, that's sort of the way that I would argue. Yes, we need to read it vertically. We need to read each of the chapters as they are, but recognize that, that it's a whole system that's woven together. You know, I'm struck also, there are many issues like that, like the Holy Spirit. Uh, for instance, covenant theology. There is a chapter on the covenants, but interestingly, mm -hmm. in that chapter on the covenants, there's no mention of a covenant of works. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, so one could say, one could think, well, you know, the confession of faith doesn't, doesn't believe in a covenant of works, but you see it really woven throughout the entire, and the, and the language specifically of covenant of works does come up later in mm -hmm. the confession. But if you, if you're just to take chapter seven and say, this is the entirety of what the confession says on covenant theology, well, then you would come away mm -hmm. with an errant view. Mm. Yeah. And you know, that that's an interesting point to make because uh, chapter seven really deals with the covenant of grace and it looks forward because it's opening up the basis of the soteriology mm -hmm. of the confession of faith. Uh, and you're, like you said, it doesn't mention the covenant of works. And there are some who have drawn the conclusion that that means that for some reason, these particular Baptists denied that doctrine. Mm -hmm. But when you come to chapter 20, which was added by the Congregationalists in 1658, to, added to the Westminster Confession, and then the Baptists followed them, there's no mention of the covenant of grace. There's a mention of the covenant of works. And there's a, there's a mirror image relationship between those two chapters, 7 and 20. Chapter 7 has to do with how uh, salvation is granted to us by means of covenant. Chapter 20 looks backwards and mentions the broken covenant of works. So, you know, the, the, they begin and end an entire section of the confession from 7 through 20 that deals with covenant theology. You might expect in a chapter of the gospel and of the extent thereof, which is the title of 20, that there'd be something about the covenant of grace, but there isn't. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that they reject the covenant of grace there? No, of course not. It's already present earlier. So you have to be very careful with making those kinds of deductions and, and uh, mistakes that uh, just because something isn't present in one place, that doesn't mean it's not foundational to the whole doctrine. Mm. You know, Jim, over the course of uh, your ministry, and I'm, I think you're probably a little younger than I am, but we, we have seen the 1689 gain uh, an increasing place of prominence among Baptists. And I'm delighted with that and delighted to see that happen. Uh, how have you witnessed that? What do you, uh, what have you seen happen relative to the importance of the 1689 as it has gained a wider uh, accessibility to people and wider use in churches? How, give us your perspective on, on that over the last 30 years. Yeah, I, I think that uh, a person who deserves a lot of credit um, 
at least in terms of the implications of his ministry as R.C. Sproul, because Dr. Sproul really popularized Reformed theology. And a lot of Baptists and Baptist churches um, appreciating his ministry and being influenced by his thinking, but unconvinced about infant baptism, began to look around for something else and encountered um, our confession of faith and recognized that there is a very strong strain within both English Baptists and American Baptists through the Philadelphia Confession, a version of the 1689, that uh, authenticates um, a, a Baptist acceptance of Reformation theology as it was uh, produced by Dr. Spohl. Now, he, he might not be happy if he were still here with us <laughs> to hear me sort of blaming him for this, and I'm not blaming him, but I'm saying his ministry was so helpful um, in, in attracting the attention of people outside of the circle of the Founders ch uh, Churches and Reformed Baptist Churches. Those two groups um, more easily came in touch with the, the Second London Confession. But it's those churches that are outside of it, Baptistic and Baptist churches, that have been influenced by men like Dr. Spohl, who discovered the Confession of Faith, and then, then reading it said, oh, here, here's something in our history that helps us. We're not new, we're not novelties, we're, we're not inventing something, but we have a long history of these mm -hmm. things. I think that that's part of what has happened. You know, it's interesting you say that. That's exactly my journey. You know, I grew up mm. not Reformed. I grew up Mennonite, um, became Reformed under the teaching of R.C. Sproul, ended up going to his Bible college, was never mm -hmm. convinced of pedo-baptism. Um, and so I latched on to the Second London Confession as my confession since all my friends held on to the Westminster and they were pedo-baptists. Um, and so I became a, a staunch confessional reformed Baptist and then ended up at IRBS um, mm -hmm. taking your symbolics class and here at Grace Baptist Church in Cape Coral and part of Founders Ministries. And so it really was, R.C. Sproul was kind of my gateway into mm -hmm. reformed Baptist and confessional tradition. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. interesting too that I was... Uh, I came to understand that the 1689 Confession was the preeminent Baptist confession in the 18th century and first part of the 19th century among Baptists in America. And That's there's right. just no doubt about that. I think Lumpkin says that, and, and maybe even Macbeth acknowledges that. Uh, and so it was so widespread, and yet it had been largely uh, lost. And, and the, the first Southern Baptist Seminary, the confessional statement of that seminary is called the abstract, abstract. of principles. And, and it uh -huh. seemed like nobody ever asked an abstract of what? But Boyce, who founded the seminary, James Boyce, he's, he referred to the Westminster Confession as our confession, mm. you know, recognizing yeah. the close connection uh, between yeah. those. You know, the, the Baptist Encyclopedia was published in 1881. William Cathcart was the editor of that. It's really an amazing piece of work. But in, in there, he makes a statement that uh, all Baptists who have sensible theology or something like that uh, adhere to the Articles of 1689. Mm. Now, I think it's a little bit of an exaggeration <laughs> in 1881, mm. but it's that he could make that kind of statement tells us that even that late into the 19th century, it was common. Then, yeah. of course, fundamentalism comes along, and there's reductionism, and among Baptists, the confession of faith is forgotten. But you're right, at Southern Seminary, they had the abstract. William Cathcart, who was a minister in Philadelphia, editing this really important work, makes that statement. Mm -hmm. it, it is a strong presence in uh, both English and American Baptist history. Yeah, I think the uh, uh, 
First Baptist Charleston, the first Southern ba- first Baptist church in the South. Uh, also, the Charleston mm-hmm. Confession is a 1689 confession. Mm-hmm. That's and, right. You know, so yeah, we've got a long heritage. I'm just delighted that it's been being recovered in our uh-huh. day, I, along with R.C. Sproul. And I think you're exactly right about how he popularized this rigorous theology that had been largely uh, forgotten, overlooked. Uh, in a more Baptist stream, Errol Hulse. Uh, did a lot mm-hmm. for the 1689. I mean, Errol mm-hmm. traveled the world. That's a name not a lot of people know of. Yeah. Did you know Errol? You, you knew Errol. Yes, I did. Yeah. 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 Errol was a dear brother. He was a one of the happiest, most joyful men I ever met. I mean, you couldn't be in a room with him for more than 10 minutes uh, without feeling your own spirit lifted with great hopes about the advance of the gospel. And he was a, mm-hmm. a very convinced post-millennialist and uh, one who wasn't angry about it. You know, he was very <laughs> happy about it. And uh, to hear him tell stories of, of from his travels, because he was a great ambassador uh, mm-hmm. going around the world, literally, and published Re- Reformation Today. And that was the first modern or modernized version of the 1689 that uh, I was uh, be- became familiar with. And I remember Graham and I were talking earlier, um, I was taking one of our men through that probably 30 years ago or so in this church. And um, the, for some reason, I had been involved or, or made aware of this hot debate during that time about whether or not assurance is of the essence of faith. And so we're going through this confession, and I was using an older version, the original version, and he was using the modern version. And so he reads it, and it says in there on that chapter that assurance is not of the essence of faith. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> and the little word so was left out. Mm-hmm. It's not so of the essence mm-hmm. of faith that a man can't backslide. Or yeah, yeah. And it just uh, reminded me that as you have advocated quite a bit, that we, we need to be very much aware of what those guys actually put down on paper. And praise God for, I mean, we, we publish, you know, a modern uh, English version of it and grateful mm-hmm. for that. It does make it accessible. Mm-hmm. But, um, the, the standard is always what they actually wrote. Well, they were very careful. They were very particular mm-hmm. with the exact phrases and words that they used. Yeah, yeah. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about <clears throat> the interplay between the Savoy Declaration and the Westminster and the 1689. I mean, and the why, first, com- first London. Uh, yeah, and the first London as well, because one of the things, again, some of the folks listening may not know this, but early on, at least in my experience in the Reformed Baptist world, there was this division between uh, those who would adhere, say they adhered to the first London because they believed that it did not teach the uh, covenant theology that we ascribe to with all Ten Commandments being moral law for today. Mm-hmm. And they believed that the first London uh, jettisoned that view or, or sublimated it somehow. And the second London just kind of baptized Westminster and elevated. So speak to that, Jim, if you would, as well as that broader question about the interplay between those documents. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, of course, the Westminster Confession was published in 1646-47, different, different edits that it went through. The Congregationalists um, edited it in 1658 at a synod in London at the place called the Savoy, and so it's known as the Savoy Declaration. It doesn't have, um, it's not well known, and the reason is that's the year that Oliver Cromwell died, uh, they were meeting right around the time that he died. And so political turmoil uh, took place in, in England, and there were all kinds of matters that happened. The Baptists come along in 1677, which is actually when the Confession was first, first published, 
And they employed the Westminster Confession of Faith. They primarily employed the Savoy Declaration. They also used uh, a, quite a bit of material from the 1646 First London Confession of Faith. Um, I, I've identified 11 times where they restore the language of Westminster that Savoy had deleted. Um, they incorporate many of the changes of Savoy, but not all of them. And then they expand some of the chapters using the language of the First London Confession of Faith. And the, the idea is, um, it, well, it's in w when the confession was first published, it included an epistle at the beginning. Uh, it, the epistle was entitled To the Judicious and Impartial Reader, hence the title of my book. That's where it comes from. And one of the things that they say is that they, <laughs> very uh, quaint language, we have no itch to clog religion <laughs> with new words and terms, right? We, I don't think we put it that way, but it's very picturesque, isn't it? <laughs> and so they they used, they adopted the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration, and the First London to say all of these documents in all of the essential matters of Christian theology agree together. Now they recognize, everybody recognizes that Presbyterianism is not the same as Congregationalism, is not the same as credo-baptism, so there are differences on those matters. But when it comes to all of the foundational doctrines of the faith, they, they confess the same thing. Uh, the words might not always be identical, especially when you compare First London with, for example, Westminster, but it was written before the, the Westminster Confession was published. And so it, it itself was based on a confession from the separatists of the late 16th century. So you, you have this family of documents that all belong together that really well express a common system of theology, but at the same time are able to articulate the, the nuances, the differences between them, and to do so in a way that's not offensive to those that you disagree with. You can happily join together with them and say, this is what we have in common, but we do have to depart from you on how the church is to function or who are the proper subjects of baptism. It's really wonderful to see how they work together to draw in a, uh, a common system of theology that could be confessed throughout the churches in the Puritan era. And also, some of the uh, framers of the first London Confession were involved in the second London Confession as well. And so, yeah, that's right. There were seven churches that first published it. By the time you get to 1677, three of them had merged into others or had gone out of business. Uh, but four of them were signers to the second London, as well as several of the individuals William Kiffin, Henry Forty, uh, Hansard Knowles, those guys. So you, you have some of the same men, you have the same churches involved, um, you have that commonality that, that, that goes from the 40s to the 70s. And look, you, you've been involved in Founders Ministries for 40 years. Um, we're talking about a period of 30 years. It's, not, it, it's very easy to conceive that the young men who were involved in the First London Confession in the mid-1640s are the same older men in the 1670s who were involved in the Second London Confession. It, it, it's easily within one's lifespan. Yeah. So you mentioned that the 1689 was originally published in 1677. So how did it come to be known as the 1689? There was a General Assembly of Churches in London held at the, the Broken Wharf Congregation in September of 1689, and they adopted the confession as their own. And uh, there's, a, there's that statement that is often published with the confession 
that has, I think it's 37 or 38 or 39 names, we subscribe to this. Um, the date on it is 1689. So it, curiously, it was not published in 1689. There's an edition, there were two editions in 77. There was one in 1688, and there was one in 1699. So uh, part of my life mission is to stop calling it the 1689 <laughs> and, and call it the Second London Confession of Faith. Well, you better either up your game or be reconciled to the fact that you're <laughs> well, not going to accomplish I, I think I see on your table there that you have a mock-up of the cover, and you'll notice in the bottom corner of the cover, it does say 1689. Oh, yeah. The, well, the orange one. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, well, that's... Um, that's one of those mysteries of uh, life that we'll just have to deal with. So yeah. uh, I, I'd be interested in your take, Dr. Renahan. You know, the confession, it, it's very robust. Uh, it's very thorough. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Many would advocate uh, for a confession that's not quite so thorough, not quite so robust, not quite so maybe narrow um, for congregations to use uh, because it seems to keep certain people out that maybe shouldn't be kept out. Um, so what, how, how would you advocate that a church should adopt the second London Baptist confession? Well, I would, I would want to hear the objections. Uh, you know, my first question would be why, what, what is there in it that would keep people out? Some of the, let, let's call them minor chapters have suddenly become very important in our culture. For example, chapter 25 of marriage, mm -hmm. um, you know, until maybe 15 years ago, that was a minor chapter. Okay, it tells us about what marriage is. It gives us some definition. Well, today, we really need that chapter very much. And to say that it, it uh, is inappropriate in confession of faith, I would argue it gives churches a lot of protection mm -hmm. when they can confess that marriage is between a man and a woman uh, for life. Um, but the uh, again, I would go back to the question, what is there in the confession that in any way is unimportant and that shouldn't be confessed by a church. Now, I would argue that just because a church adopts the confession of faith, that doesn't mean that every member of that church must understand everything in the confession of faith right. and accede to it. Uh, I think that the elders of the church can be very wise in recognizing that immature Christians won't have a level of theological understanding, or that perhaps there are Christians who, for one reason or another, would differ with some of the points of the confession of faith, but still could be admitted to membership in that church. So I don't think uh, holding to the confession so narrowly defines the membership of a gospel church that it uh, 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 prevents anyone uh, from, from becoming a member. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and, and that point about confessionalism and, and how you use a confession in your church has confounded some folks. And it led uh, about 12 years ago, Nine Marks published uh, an article of you know, should your church use a Second London Baptist Confession of Faith by Sean Wright. And he said, no, you shouldn't. And so the, we published a whole edition of the Founders Journal responding to that, showing uh, our arguments and what we think is the wisdom of holding to this confession. And basic, basically his concern was it's too robust. Not everybody's ever going to agree on everything. Well, that's not even the point. You know, mm -hmm. That's not the point. No, uh, it's not. you gotta, you, you got to know how to use a confession in your church. And, um, man, I just, I love it. It's served us so well yeah. so many times uh, in terms of teaching people, to giving, giving them a framework uh, on which 
to uh, understand the message of the Bible, the big story of the Bible, as well as addressing issues that come up in times of controversy, like, as you just mentioned with marriage. Uh, we cannot take these things for granted anymore, and to think that oh no, we've just we're the first generation that's had to deal with these issues. Well, in their modern garb, that's true, but the truth about marriage hasn't changed. God has revealed mm-hmm. it, and we ought to confess it. It's been confessed, and we should do so un- unapologetically. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I love the 1689. I'm grateful for it, and um, I'm delighted to see it becoming uh, more widely recognized and used. And Jim, your life and ministry has been tremendously used of God in that effort. And to the degree that this confession represents true biblical teaching, uh, you have been instrumental in seeing a recovery of true biblical teaching Uh, promoting health to Baptist churches. And we're, we're in your debt, brother, especially for this next volume. We are in your debt. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks. Thanks. Praise the Lord. I hope it is useful. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm interested, you know, a lot of people, when they read through the confession, um, you can read the, uh, the subtext and the scripture references that are given for as, um, you know, evidence for some of the, the doctrine that's argued for. And sometimes you can flip to those passages in the scripture and it doesn't necessarily look li- necessarily look like it's referring to what the the uh, confession is referring to. So, how do you use those scripture references that are in the confession? Yeah, good question. Um, th- there are one or two that are printer's errors that that, that actually are incorrect. Uh, I've had emails from guys, and they say, "I just don't get this. Where does it work?" It's in chapter eight, and it says First Corinthians, I think four ten. And I looked at it, and I thought, "Yeah, that doesn't work." But when you look at First Corinthians ten four, yeah. It, it's exactly what uh, uh, the, the, the text is about. Uh, Carl Truman and Richard Muller both have uh, pointed out that the proof texts were not intended in the, uh, the post-Reformation confessions to be the, the final answer in support of any doctrine, but rather they're pointers to the exegetical tradition. So you take out the, uh, the commentaries, not the modern ones, because the modern ones don't do this so much, but you take out some of the older commentaries and you look at how the the expositors of Scripture looked at that text and then drew forth from it various doctrines. So you're you're sent to a larger body of material in order to be able to understand how this doctrine is drawn from that text. And that's one of the things I tried to do in the book. Um, one of the the great commentaries that I I used regularly is called the English Annotations. Um, often, sometimes it's called the Westminster Annotations because some of the men from the Westminster Assembly participated in it. But it was published in 1645. It's a it's a exposition, or, or it's it's comments on all the verses of the Bible, a massive folio set. And I often found it very helpful in looking at the proof text to go back to that. And you can find it on Google Books. You can download it for free. Mm. Um, and it, it gives you help to see how they understood this text with relationship to the doctrine that is confessed in, in the paragraph in the Confession of Faith. So all of a sudden, what you're doing is you're seeing not just the doctrine as it's expressed in the paragraph, but you're, you're entering into the world of post-Reformation theological biblical studies and basing that doctrine in what the text of the Bible says. It's a really helpful approach. Mm. Wonderful. 
Wonderful. Well, Jim, thank you so much for your time today. My we pleasure. Appreciate the conversation with you, and look forward to your book coming out. We mm-hmm. will uh, celebrate that and make it as widely available as we possibly can. Uh, we will continue to pray the Lord blesses your life and ministry there at IRBS. We are so encouraged to hear the good reports that continue to come out of that seminary, and we'll link in the notes to this episode how you can uh, find Jim, how you can find IRBS, and how you can get the the books uh, that he has published and make those widely available to you. So thanks for joining us today on The Sword and Trial. We look forward to you being with us again next week.